right. Good evening, everybody. Um, I know we started just a couple minutes late here. Um, hey, you know what? For no choir and some people out sick, this ain't bad. I want to thank you all for coming. Um, I want to, well, let me look at this. We've got our Christmas service Sunday. Lottie Moon is being collected until then. Is that, is that right? Well, we can, yes. Um, end of December, okay. It says 24th in here. Um, we will not have Wednesday services next week. Um, most people, well, a lot of people will be traveling. In fact, some people don't know yet. My, my family was planning on traveling, and we just found out we might not be, and we hadn't figured it out yet. Um, that's all the announcements that I've got. Um, let, me, <clears throat> let me give you a few uh, extra prayer requests um, to add to your list here, and if you have others, you can uh, let us know. But I think most folks in here knew Wayne Green and his, Scott is, is Scott his youngest Scott is his youngest son, and as far as I know, Scott is still with us, but he's not been given very long. He's on life support. He's been moved three times. And uh, if you don't know, Wayne told me when Wayne was still with us that they gave Scott almost no chance of living to be 50. And I don't know how old he is, but he's over 50, isn't he? Uh, he's 40. Okay. I'm 43, 45. Okay. Okay. But anyway, um, he's, uh, he's in Charlotte. They called the family in when they took him off life support. And um, anyway, it doesn't look like he has a whole lot longer. And that's going to be a tough situation for that family. All right? So just keep them in your prayers. Um, remember the Esther Cotton family as well. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll let you guys, if you have any other prayer requests that you'd, you'd like to mention. Does anybody have any others or any updates? Libby, go ahead. All right, so let's remember this family as well. That's tough, uh, losing family members right before Christmas. You got one? Uh, yeah, this is good news. Um, <clears throat> in fact, what's Aaron's last name? Griffith. Griffith. Um, you may or may not remember us mentioning Aaron. He is on here, isn't he? If he's not on here now, he has been. But Aaron Griffith is childhood friend of Allison and her brother. It's her brother's best friend. And so he's about two years older than my wife. He's the one that was diagnosed with colon cancer last year. Had a terrible time with it. Uh, went through treatments. It spread during treatments. Um, but anyway, he's continued to go through treatments. And this is a real tough thing for a young man. Well, it's a tough thing for anybody. Um, but, you know, he's... Uh, a young husband. He has two little kids, and uh, but today he got a clean scan. They're saying there's no cancer in his body. It's been like a two-year a two-year battle, and they're going to keep a real close watch on him, make sure it doesn't pop up over the next two years. And after that, they'll start spreading his checkups um, out more. And uh, so anyway, we praise the Lord for that, and uh, that's it's a wonderful thing. And uh, I'll say he has grown much spiritually through this trial. And, you know, we wouldn't wish this sort of thing on anybody, but sometimes God uses the toughest times uh, uh, to, to grow people the most spiritually. So um, what other prayer requests? Okay. It'll, it'll get better. I remember that. I had braces when I was a kid. Uh, Where did you say? Where, Mississippi? Goshe. Anybody else? I had talked to Sonny today, and Sonny uh, said Norma's leg was healing now. Healing real good. And uh, she can start putting a little pressure on it now. And uh, I think the therapist and everything starting to work with her now so she can start getting in that 
did she break her leg at home? I don't know if anybody ever told me. Was she at home when she fell? Okay. Yeah, because she had been in the hospital back and forth yeah, before she's, that. She's in the she's in the rest home now. Yes. And, uh, she hopes she might get some home soon there. But okay. Like All right. Anybody else? Jansen. All right, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer right now. Um, dear Heavenly Father, uh, we want to come to you and first uh, just praise your name. Thank you for being our Lord, our God. Thank you for being so good to us. And uh, Lord, we have so many blessings before us each and every day. And uh, God, forgive us. Many times we don't take time to give thanks for the many good things that we have in this life. And uh, Lord, we just want to we want to honor you with all that we are. And uh, so, God, give us open eyes to see the good things that you have done for us uh, and that you do for us. Uh, Lord, we want to uh, come to you now uh, for these many that have been mentioned. There are some that have lost loved ones going into the holidays. There are those that are going through some difficult times and uh, some with, with health trials of various sorts. We have church members that are sick. And, uh, Lord, you, you know all of these needs. And, uh, God, they're, they're hard for us to even wrap our minds around. And, uh, Lord, sometimes they seem so overwhelming that, uh, Lord, we can't. And so, God, we just ask that you would uh, minister in all of these situations, that you would tend to us as you see fit. You know what's best for us. You know what each of us needs. Um, God, we thank you that you answer prayers. Uh, we thank you for the good reports that we've heard. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that uh, all of us will be able to live our lives in such a way that we glorify you and that uh, the world might see Christ in us. Uh, we do thank you for our church and, uh, Lord, for what it means to us and for the opportunities that come with it. We thank you that we can uh, be called the church. And uh, we just ask that you'd bless our uh, service tonight. Lord, as we study your word, we pray that it would be something that uh, grows us in our Christian faith and that as Jude commands, that it helps us to contend for the faith. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue with Jude. And... Um, we really got slowed down. I'm going to take my sweater off. between what we talked about last time and just let me uh, review what we had discussed uh, up until this point. And I want to remind you that Jude wanted to write about the common salvation, the faith that uh, those that he, by the way, he starts with this uh, reminder of the security that Christians have, um, the called, the beloved in God, the ones that are kept for Jesus Christ. And uh, then he says, you know, that he wanted to write about the common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you concerning these things. And those things are the false teachers, the certain people that have crept in unawares, uh, who were designated for this condemnation. He says that they are ungodly people that pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So his warning is don't follow after these people that have crept. And by the way, he's saying that they're in the church. And so these are things that were present in Jude's day. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, they are present in our day. Now, I want to say it's worse. I don't know if it's worse. But just be aware that um, even in church, well, the Bible says that there are tares among the wheat. And so um, many times teachers can be false teachers. And uh, the examples that he uses of apostates from the Old Testament that we've covered over the last three weeks, our first Israel, and it says that Jesus destroyed those of Israel whom he had delivered, and then they didn't believe. And then he talked about the apostate angels that kept not their own estate, or as it says, the way it's worded in the ESV, um, that they did not stay within their position of authority. And of course, this refers to them coming to earth and cohabitating with people and doing what is unnatural for angels. In fact, the Bible says that in heaven we will be like the angels, where we are not married. My wife has promised to sit at my table at lunchtime, by the way. 
but anyway, and so these angels did that which was not lawful. And so they were apostates as well. And then Sodom and Gomorrah, which we could call apostates um, of humanity. And so it says that these serve as an example. And then Jude links those with some more examples that he gives. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 8, and we're going to read through 13. He says, Yet in like manner, these people also, that is the false teachers that have crept in, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And he says of these, he says, These are hidden reefs at your love feast. By the way, love feast refers to the Lord's Supper. So this is in church. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so, again, these are strong words, uh, terrifying words. And uh, I'll say this as, your, as our first point, is that modern false teachers, that's how he begins when he says, yet in like manner, these people also, these modern false teachers, they have the same fruits as previous false teachers. Now, when we talked about Israel being led astray, I mentioned I made a clear point that somebody started that. Somebody, somebody grumbled first, and, uh, and they led the others astray. When it came to the angels, somebody rebelled first, and of course we know this to be Satan himself. And then when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, again, this was something that happened not overnight, but as a slow fade, and somebody began drifting away into that which is not natural. And so... A few of the things that we see here that are listed, some of these fruits that are the same for false teachers in our day, by the way, that were also true in Jude's day, and that were also true all the way back to prehistory. When I say prehistory, I mean before the flood. I shouldn't use that term. That's a point is, some things never change. Or as it says in Ecclesiastes, there is truly nothing new under the sun. Um, but... Uh, I want to point out a few of these things. He says that they rely on their dreams. In fact, I think that the King James calls them filthy dreamers. Um, it says that they defile the flesh, that they reject authority, and then number four, they blaspheme the glorious ones. And so let me just say here that when it's talking about relying on their dreams, most of the time if you hear a preacher preach on this, he's going to present this as dream readers. And by the way, these people are in full force today. And they preach like this. They say, I had a dream last night. And then they describe some scene. And they say, this was the Lord telling me such and such. There, there is literally no boundaries if that's their authority. They can say whatever they want. And um, that's not scriptural. There is no new revelation. The canon is closed. And you should be scared of people that, that do that. Now, having said that, did God use dreams to communicate to people in the Bible sometimes? Yes, He did. And can He use dreams to remind you of something? Yes, sure He can. But don't have some crazy dream and think it was God telling you something. If every time I had a dream I assumed it was from God, we'd be led in a hundred different directions and most of them would be wrong, okay? So the point is... Uh, we're not dream interpreters. We don't make much of dreams. We don't assume every time we have a dream that it's from God. In fact, let me tell you about dreams. One time I had a dream, and I woke up, and I said, Honey, you won't believe what you did in my dream. And I was mad at her all day long for a dream. But guess what? It was just something in my imagination, something that I was holding on to. And, uh, and she still teases me about that. Remember that time you got mad at me for something I didn't even really do? 
Uh, but that's the way dreams are. We don't need to make much of dreams. But let me say this. I think there's another level to this dream comment. I'll read it again. You be the judge of this, all right? Relying on their dreams is the way it's written in the ESV. Dreams can refer to more than just when we're asleep and our conscious is churning. Sometimes dreams are the things that people desire. They're the things that uh, people set their heart on. Uh, we talk about daydreaming or dreams that we have in regards to goals or desires that we have. And so I think that sometimes things in the Bible have two layers of truth. And so this could refer to, by the way, the Jews were some of these dream readers in that day. And so that could be all there is to it. But it could also refer to people dreaming up, um, well, their own way. And I'll, I'll get to more when I say their own way. That, that's in the text here as well. It says that they defile the flesh. Now, this obviously has to do with things that you do with your own body. And I'll remind you that in the Scriptures, um, there are warnings against all, all manner of sexual sin. And that's mostly what this refers to. When it talked about the angels, that's what he's referring to. When it talked about Sodom and Gomorrah in this passage... That's what it's referring to. And so I think that when we read this, we keep it in the context and we say that it is any sin against your own flesh against the, or the flesh of others. And so uh, we see this. I, I want to point this out. I want to make much of this. This is a characteristic of false teachers in the church. Now, are any alarm bells going off? You see this in, in particular in certain denominations that have embraced unbiblical, ungodly ideas. Um, I don't say this just to, to bash them and uh, continue to beat a dead horse, so to speak, but I, I think you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, the denominations that, that now have homosexual clergy, for example, you, ca you cannot do that. It is ungodly, and it is defilement of the flesh. And to do so, they must do the next one, which is what? Reject authority. Now, that one right there is probably a particularly convicting one to modern-day Americans. Um, in fact, we're supposed to be subject to civil authority, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. In fact, uh, my wife and I were having a conversation about some of her family members, and I'm not saying that all Methodist people are lost here, but they're Methodist, and the, the Methodists, the United Methodists, do not hold to an inerrant scripture. In other words, they think they have a collection of men's writings that have some truths of God, and it's up to us to sift through them and make the most of it. And by the way, these same family members... They don't regard the gospel as God's message of salvation to mankind. That's terrifying. They have rejected God as their authority. And in some of these other examples, you're going to see that. Um, you're going to see the rejection of authority. In fact, it says um, their fourth thing, they blaspheme the glorious ones. I dug around in that, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Uh, but if you go to that in the Greek, the, the glorious ones... It's, Almost every Bible scholar says this refers to angels. We don't worship angels, but we know that the Bible says that we are men made a little lower than the angels, that the angels do God's work, that they watch over us, um, that they minister to us in different ways, mostly in ways that we do not see or even sense. Um, but the word here is doxa, and it's always a good thing that has to do with praise, honor, and glory. It does not specifically mean angels, and again, it's translated here as glorious ones. Um, but doxa literally means what evokes good opinion, uh, something that has inherent or intrinsic worth. And so we don't know exactly what this means, um, at least not to the most specific detail, but this word blaspheme, it means what it means. It's speaking against the glorious ones. And so most people are going to say they're speaking against angels, and the very next example that we're going to deal with is the archangel Michael contending for the body of Moses. So it fits the context, but let me just say something. I think that you can go beyond that, and like the people that don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, they don't believe that when the apostles wrote the New Testament that they did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they're the, they're the foundation of the church. Uh, Christ promises them as much. And... Uh, so I would say that when we read that they blaspheme the glorious ones, this is part of the rejecting of authority. By the way, when you go down that road, what you're really doing is saying, I'm God. I say what's right and what's wrong. I choose. 
And uh, the other option is you're under some authority, namely the authority of God. And in our case, it is an apostolic authority. So we're under the teaching of the apostles as well. Now this example, let's look at this uh, example. There's several examples here. I want to cover all of them. But this first one is one that we don't know a whole lot about. Um, it says, the example of the archangel Michael. And basically, uh, how is it worded? In the King James, I can remember, it says he didn't bring a railing accusation against him. Um, the, the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So... Here Jude is saying, respect dignities, don't blaspheme glorious ones, don't reject authority. And his example is that the archangel Michael didn't even do that to the devil. We probably ought to be a little bit more reverent in the things that we say about Satan. In fact, let me remind you, I think it was Al Mohler that said this, remember that Satan is still God's devil. It's kind of an interesting thought because we think of him as an enemy. He is the enemy. He's a slander. And so we look forward to the day when he's going to be captured and cast into the abyss. But the fact is, the fact that Satan is running loose today is by God's plan. God could catch him up and chain him today, but he didn't. And God uses Satan. God created Satan. And God knew everything that Satan would do before he did it. And so we need to see things not through our eyes, but through God's eyes. And I believe that's what Michael does here. And when it says that he doesn't uh, pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but says, the Lord rebuke you, he's trusting in God. That's where we mess up a lot of times. We have a harder time trusting God. In fact, do y'all remember, was it Sunday um, that I read the passage uh, from Zechariah? about the high priest Joshua. Did y'all notice that these same words were in there? It's kind of by coincidence. Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him, but the angel of the Lord said, the Lord rebuke you. It's those same words. And so let me say this. What we see in some denominations where people presume to have powers that people don't have, spiritual powers, these are all the... These are the uh, full gospel types of folks that have had the second baptism, and they can cast out demons. In fact, y'all remember the, uh, the revival? What, what was the, y'all, the revival that was a few months ago? Uh, what's the name of the college? Somebody help me out. Asbury. Asbury. At the Asbury College. Um, I saw a video from there where a lady was having a, a seizure. She was having a medical issue. And <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a Methodist school, by the way, but... Some, it, it attracted all sorts of people, and there were some Pentecostals in there. And they came down there, and they started rebuking the devil and casting the devil out of this woman. What she needed was a doctor, okay? Now, I'm not saying that there are not spiritual issues sometimes, um, but these people were rebuking in their own power. And I believe that they were doing something that's not biblical whatsoever. And so here we see that even the archangel Michael wouldn't do something like that, but say, the Lord rebuke you to Satan himself. And he says this of these false teachers in verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Have you all ever met somebody that didn't understand something? They said, well, that's just stupid anyway. There are some preachers that do that, and they have cast out entire books of the Bible or com complete doctrines that are found in the Scriptures. And so... Um, they blaspheme what they don't understand, and they are destroyed by all that they... Now listen, this, this is a very interesting wording. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is a different type of understanding. This is something that they know, but they know it like animals, not like people who are taught of the apostles, who are taught of God. In fact, what he say right after that? He says, woe to them. This is a strong warning. Woe to these false teachers. And let me just say, by extension, everyone that would follow after them. Do you realize that we're all followers? Everybody that has ever lived is a follower. The, qu the question is, what do you follow? Um, by the way, let's talk about Moses for a second. It's real easy for me to skip over that. Does anybody know where the story in the Bible is about the archangel Michael contending with the devil over Moses' body? It's not in there. 
This is one of those things that just appears out of nowhere in the New Testament. And it's not the only time this happens. Um, For example, when uh, Moses appears before Pharaoh, it does not say back in Exodus what the names of those sorcerers are. But Paul just pulls it out of his back pocket in 2 Timothy, and he refers to them as uh, Jonas and Jambres. But we don't have that in the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, Paul produces it. Now, some people have come up with all sorts of theories about this. There is the death of Moses in the Scriptures. And um, I'm not going to read all of it to you, but let me read you the short version just so you can wrap your mind around it. Um, This is from Deuteronomy 34 if you want to look it up later. And it's a very short chapter, but um, it says, Then Moses, keep in mind, Moses is not allowed to go into the Promised Land because he struck the rock that he was asked to speak to. As a matter of fact... Take all night if I chase every rabbit trail here. Moses did something that false teachers do when he, when he didn't obey God. Do you remember he was told to strike the rock the first time? And this pictures Christ being struck for us. And the next time he was told to speak to the rock. And if I can give you uh, just the short version of me recapitulating it. This is not word for word. Moses goes out to the rock. The people are complaining um, about not having any water. And he gathers them before the rock and he says, Must we bring water out of this rock for you? And so Moses here is taking all the credit. And then instead of speaking to it, which is what God asked him to do, not only does he strike the rock, but he strikes it twice. And God tells Moses, he says, Because you didn't present me as holy before the people of Israel you're not going to enter into the promised land. And so this is the record of Moses uh, not getting to enter into the promised land. It says that, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. And I'm going to skip the names of all the land in the description. And he said, God says to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And we'll finish it because it's kind of interesting. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Isn't that a good way to go? 120 years old and you still got the strength in your eyes and in your hands. Um, But did you notice who buried him? Huh? The Lord buried him. We don't have much detail on that. And now why did he do that? I have no idea. Um, I read a few commentaries and... I'm not sure that this is right, but John Gill, who was the first Baptist to write a commentary for the whole Bible, he supposed that it was because people would worship at the tomb of Moses. You notice it says that that tomb's not known to this day. And I was reminded of you know, Roman Catholics carrying around a bone. They say Saint so-and-so's finger bone in the vial. And uh, maybe that's it because people are prone to that sort of thing. It's at least possible that God has, has plans for Moses' body. Um, I don't know that to be true, but if you read Revelation, there are the two witnesses. In fact, when John the Baptist is um, in the wilderness, um, you remember the Pharisees come to him? They want to know who he is. And they're not saying, are you John the Baptist? In fact, they ask him if he was, uh, if he was Elijah or if he was, quote, that prophet. And then when they say that prophet, they're talking about Moses. Um, and I don't know who the two witnesses are in Revelation. Uh, the likely candidates are the two men that have never died, in my opinion. And that's Enoch and Elijah. It says that Enoch walked with the Lord, and so God took him. He was translated, or raptured might be the word that we like to use in New Testament days. And then Elijah, um, when he passed off the mantle to Elisha, he was swept away in chariots of fire. Whatever that means, right? Um, and so I have often thought those would be the two men um, that are the witnesses in Revelation. I think it's chapter 11. Um, but they're given power uh, that mirrors the power of Elijah 
to shut up the heavens that they don't rain. In fact, it says that they will do that. And it's for the exact same amount of time that Elijah did it in the Old Testament. So kind of can check his box. But the other plagues um, that are in the power of the two witnesses are the same ones that Moses did, turning water to blood and uh, darkness and that sort of thing. So um, anyway, I'm not sure about that. Don't want to make too much of it. Uh, at any rate, the Archangel Michael, and the lesson that you want to learn here is don't speak evil, even of Satan, really. And, you know, I think we teach our kids songs to sing about the demise of Satan in Sunday school and things like We probably shouldn't even do that. We should probably be a people. In fact, I came under a lot of conviction studying this part alone. And you know what it was? We need to trust God more. Let me say that the personally. I need to trust God more. He is completely in control, including of Satan. And so we need to act like it. You know, sometimes preachers fall in this trap. Oh, poor us. The church age is past, and we're a small group, and it feels like the world's winning and we're losing. No, we're not. <laughs> we are victors. We're more than victors in Christ Jesus. All right, let me move on. All right, so the next example we see is the example of Cain. This is another example of apostasy. Um, so what was Cain's sin? Somebody killed his brother. <laughs> You're right, but that's not where it started. In fact, I'll remind you, it's another story where we're not given the full background because we see them offering sacrifices. And it says that Abel was a shepherd, and he offered the best of his flock, including the fatlings thereof. And it says that Cain was a tiller of the ground, and he offered vegetables. God respected Abel's, but not Cain's. And he warns Cain about it. What's clear here, even though we don't have God's instructions to them, is that there were some instructions. God's disappointment wasn't based on nothing. It was based on Cain choosing to worship God the way that he chose. Now, the speculation, which only makes sense, is that sacrifice was a blood sacrifice. And the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the sacrifices, I know that there are uh, the first fruits sacrifices, but atoning sacrifices are blood sacrifices. And so, woe to them that follow after Cain. Cain worshiped in his own way. Let me say this for the false teacher, because that's what Jude's saying. Don't follow after false teachers. So if I was to come in here one Sunday and say, I've had a dream, <laughs> run. <laughs> but if I say, I had a dream, and there's a new way that we're going to worship God, even if it sounds like a good idea, don't listen. Go somewhere else or send me somewhere else. I'm not Moses. We'll deal with that in a minute. You can run me off. You can't run Moses off. Um, so we don't make up our own ways of worship. To do so is sin. You don't, you know, think about what Cain did. He just did what was convenient. Well, I'm a gardener. I've got these vegetables. I'll bring them. Um, but God clearly had another way. And so when we see him walking and these false teachers walking the way of Cain, they don't, they don't worship God for God's sake. They worship God for their sake. If you, want to, if you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, live a life of obedience. Oh my gosh, he's a legalist. Not a legalist. The scriptures are clear. In fact, obedience is better than sacrifice. That's what it says in the Old Testament. And in, Well, here's another one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Why? Because my own understanding can be wrong. But God's never is. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Now this next example, by the way, Jude stacks them up. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. So there's the next example, Balaam's error. Not a super well-known story, and if you go research it in the Old Testament, you'll find, I wrote down the... Uh, example or the uh, scripture address. It's November, uh, Numbers, November's, <laughs> Numbers 22 through 24 is, if you, if you look up his story, that's where you'll find most of it, not all of it. Um, in fact, Balaam is also found in Numbers 31, and it's just a sort of little, a little side note. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because it's, it's a few chapters long, but we see a phrase here that says, uh, Where's that? They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Can I say that another way so that it sort of sinks in a little better? 
They sold their souls for greed's sake, like Balaam. Now, Balaam, I'll be honest with you, I can't quite wrap my mind around the guy because he's clearly a priest of some sort, but not a very good one. And so uh, the setting is Israel is coming into the promised land. They've just went to war with, I don't know, the Amicalites. I I don't know who it is, one of the people groups. And, uh, and, And they've had victory, and Moab is watching this, and Moab's next. And the king of Moab is Balak. And uh, Balak says, go to Balaam because whoever he curses is cursed and whoever he blesses is blessed. And he says, tell him to curse Israel. And he, in fact, let me just flip over there. I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm just going to use it as, as to jog my memory. And uh, he says that, that, oh, by the way, it says that he sent uh, dignitaries, he sent princes with fees for divination. And so they're going to pay him to curse Israel, God's people. I believe there are some modern parallels here. But God came to Balaam and he says, Who are these men that are with you? And he tells him, Balak sent them. And uh, God says, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Now look, that's God's answer. You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. When it's that clear, there is no excuse for doing anything else. And there are some things in the Bible that are so clear that there's no excuse for doing anything else, but the false teacher comes up with all sorts of reasons to do something unbiblical. And so, of course, this is tied to gain. And I'll read you in verse 15. Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable by the way, a lot of people will do something for a little bit of reputation. Oh, I know so-and-so. Or he could easily say, Balak sent his best men. He sent the, the chief princes of his court down here, and brought gold and silver. And it says, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. Some people can't deal with that. Most people can't deal with great riches or great honor. Um, but guess what? When you read about Balaam, this strange prophet, he, he does a lot of things right. He said, this is what he says, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. That's, that's a good answer, isn't it? But do you remember what God said? You shall not go with them. Do you know what he does? He goes with them. And in fact, uh, he, I'm going to say he tempts the Lord because three different times in this story, They set up altars, and he goes to God. And basically he's saying, remember, God's already said here, don't go with them, don't curse them, these people are blessed. And he goes to him three different times. Look out, some of y'all have done this. God's answer is clear, and you go, oh, Lord, today's a new day. Maybe something's different. Would you bless me in such and such? Or when you've prayed to God a thousand times for the same thing, and it's been an unanswered prayer. Sometimes we need to be content with what we've been given. Um, but again, Balaam is doing this for greed's sake, and that's, that's the main thing. I'm not telling you not to pray for something a whole bunch of times, but even the Apostle Paul with a thorn in his flesh, he says, thrice I went to my Savior and asked him to take this from me. I don't know about you guys. I have a hard time giving up after three. Um, but anyway, th- by the way, this is one of the passages of the Bible I like. You know why? Because Balaam got on a donkey... And he's riding out with the men. And this is the famous passage that atheists love. Well, you don't believe a donkey spoke, did you? do you? Yes, I do. I really do. I don't think he imagined it speaking. I don't think that this was a, a dream he had. I think that the donkey spoke to him. By the way, how would you like God to rebuke you through the mouth of a donkey? Man. And uh, by the way, Balaam says, I wish I had a sword. I would kill you right now. And uh, I think the donkey says, have I not been your donkey all these years? And have I ever done you wrong like this? And it says that uh, God opened his eyes and the angel of the Lord was standing in the way with his sword drawn. And he was going to kill him for being disobedient. And then he he lets him go. And um, he says, go with the men, but only speak the word, I tell you. Long story short, God will not let him curse Israel. And then it looks like the end of the story. It looks like we move on to another story when we get to 25 But if you keep going in Numbers, you eventually get to Numbers 31 and you read this verse. 
Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. All right, so that's Numbers 31, verse 16. And now I'm going to flip over and read you something that Jesus said in Revelation. And this is in Revelation 2.14. This is to the a letter to the church at Pergamum. He says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Not a small thing. By the way, that's, from, that's Jesus' exegesis of what happened here. So... If you fill in the blanks here, because we're not given every detail of every conversation and every thought that Balaam had, but Balaam, after this happened, evidently was like, well, I didn't get paid by the king because I didn't curse him. And he keeps working behind the scenes, and he figures out a way to make Israel stumble so that God will curse him. And by the way, it worked. Terrible. Some man of God, some priest. Um, but evidently, he could hear from God. He was in touch with the Lord, and he did this anyway. This is a false teacher that encourages people in sin. Now, I have heard some preachers, and they are soft on sin to the point that they encourage it. If a preacher gets up there and he says, Well, such and such is really not that bad of a sin if you can do it with a clear conscience. If it's sin, it's sin. And we need to say that it's sin. And if the whole world hate us for saying that sin is sin, let the whole world hate us. Not to do so is to follow after the error of Balaam. And by the way, I think that the modern preachers who do that, they do it for the same reason that Balaam did it. So that they can maintain the praise of men and their paycheck. Can you imagine going to stand before God and say, Well, yeah, I was a little soft on sin, but had to have a paycheck. Have mercy. All right. So that's Balaam, mixing of practices, bringing immorality into Christian living. And then this last example is the example of Korah's rebellion. And I'll cover this quickly. This basically has to do with an overthrow of God's authority. You like how Jude just stacks them up? You have to know your Old Testament to read Jude or at least review it. Uh, this is from Numbers 16. And this is, the word is rebellion, uh, they perished in Korah's rebellion. And so, uh, rebellion, what's another word for this? Mutiny. Um, God had chosen Moses and Aaron, and he had set them up. But Korah, by the way, Korah was part of the priesthood. And so he, he already was in service to the Lord. And the, here's the short version. You can go read it later in your own time. But he says, well, we're, we're all priests, and all the people are holy. What do we need you for? And so he basically says, we don't need you. We don't need your brother. Uh, we can do this without you. This is the overthrow. Um, and uh, it was planned, by the way, and it was very well organized. In fact, it says that he gathered up 250 leaders, that they were chosen, that they were well-known men. Do you know what that means? People with sway. I couldn't help but read this and think of a, a church rift where somebody goes around behind the scenes and says, well, we need you on our team. Oh, you know, we, we think that this half of the church is not doing what they're supposed to or they're too big for their britches. Or we're going to show them up and we're going <laughs> to... This is like one of the vote the preacher out type things. Bring it on. <laughs> I'll see you all at the next church. Uh, but the, the, the fact is, they didn't want Moses, who God had chosen, to be their pastor. And by the way, I can't, I can't think of a better pastor than Moses. Now look, he's, he's more than a pastor, no doubt about it. But do you know that when... When the people sinned against God, Moses would get down on his knees and he would pray to God and say, forgive this people of their sin. They did not deserve it and he would intercede for them. But he doesn't do it here. These people, when they stand up to Moses, and by the way, we are such an individualistic society, we miss just how grievous this sin is. But Moses didn't miss it. And uh, Moses tells him, he says, the Lord will choose. The Lord will reveal himself. He will show who is holy and he will show who is not. Um, and he tells the Lord, he tells me, he, he, Moses sets it up. 
And he says, basically, it's, it's almost like the showdown at Mount Carmel. And he says, you bring your censers out, you burn your offerings to the Lord, you light your incense. And, and God tells Moses, he says, stay back from them. God's about to show up. And this is the story, if you remember, where the ground splits and the earth swallows them up, which is what Moses said would happen. He says, if these men die like all men die, then uh, they're in the right. In other words, if they go on to live, he says, but if the earth opens up and swallows them whole, then you will know that what they have done is wrong. And Moses does continue to be a peacemaker after that because not only does the earth open up and swallow them up, these usurpers uh, who... Let me go back and read that part again in Jude. It says that they blaspheme all that they... Or excuse me. They blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed, but all they that like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Doesn't it remind you of a bunch of dogs looking for the top position? Oh, we don't need Moses. I can be the alpha dog. I still hear men talk like that, like we're having some sort of competition where we beat our chest. Um, they're rejecting authority and blaspheming the glorious ones. And so in this... And by the way, let me just, I don't want to make too much of this. He says that these false teachers have done what? They have walked past tents in the way of Cain. They've invented their own way of worship. Um, they have abandoned themselves. Again, that's past tense. Abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, and they have perished in Korah's rebellion. Well, hold on now. He's talking about false teachers that are influencing the church right now, and he says that they have perished in Korah's rebellion. Well, the people back then, Korah and the 250, they perished. But here he's talking about the false teachers. I'm going to suggest to you that what he's saying here is that they're worldly and that the world has already swallowed them up. They're still here among us, leading people astray. And by the way, let's, I'm going to finish this just by giving you his warning. Um, and this is verses 12 and 13. There are hazards with false teachers. He says that they are hidden reefs. Now look, I'm not a sailor, but I know what that means. You know what a hidden reef will do? In fact, if you're a sailor and you know there's a reef over there, you don't take your boat over there. But a hidden reef will sink your ship. And that's what he's saying. They're hidden reefs. They're steering the ship in the wrong direction. He says that they feast without fear. And again, this is at the Lord's Supper. Don't ever approach the Lord's table with anything other than reverence with anything other than a total focus on the value of the very blood of Jesus Christ. These are people that would do so flippantly. Oh yeah, we had the Lord's Supper today, had a little juice and crackers. It's not a snack. It's not funny. It's not just a ritual. It's a reset so that you can put your heart back on Christ and examine yourself. You do not do it without fear. And I don't want to be one of these preachers that tells you to be terrified of God. But in the age we live in, reverence the Almighty God and reverence His Christ. Because most churches don't do it. They take God lightly like He's a genie in a bottle or something or a big teddy bear, and He's not. He is the everlasting, the Almighty. It says that they are waterless clouds. Now look, if you have ever been somebody that planted a garden and you've got a dry spell, you know what waterless clouds are. Because when you need that rain and you see them gather, and a dark cloud, it's usually a promise of rain, but a dark cloud that passes over is like a false teacher. It looks like it's got what you need. It looks like it's got a blessing, but it doesn't. It gives you nothing. He says that they are fruitless trees, twice dead, plucked up. Interesting picture there. A tree with no fruit. By the way, Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. He says that they have no fruit and they are twice dead. This twice dead, if you think about it, the Christian is born twice and dies once. But the unbeliever is born once and dies twice. That's what the scripture says. This is, when they are cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. Plucked up. You know what plucked up means? It's a tree with no fruit that never will have fruit. It has no roots in the earth, nothing to draw nutrients, water, nothing to make leaves with which to gather sunlight. He also says that they are waves foaming out their own shame. Anybody who's sat at the beach knows that the waves just keep on rolling. 
And every time they crash, they keep on foaming. And so I would say that here, uh, they're not ashamed of things that they should be ashamed of. They're like the ocean that just continually rolls, and they do it in the face of everyone. He calls them wandering stars. I could spend some time here. Stars have a place up there, don't they? They're fixed in the sky. Now, I'm not talking about seasonal changes as uh, the earth goes through its uh, tilt cycle or anything like that. But stars are fixed, like our sun. Our sun is a star. They have a place. In fact, we use stars. Well, we don't so much anymore. But this culture would have used stars to navigate. What about a wandering star? Is that a good thing to navigate by? No. Not in its place. You can't know your way by them. And in fact... If you will read your Bible with me having given this to you, you'll see it many times. If you've never noticed it, stars are emblematic of angels. Uh, the, the, the obvious example is when Satan fell, it says he drew a third part of the stars out of the sky with him when he fell. And so this uh, angels that are not in their place, again, it's still things against their nature. And in fact, this phrase that he uses, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. He's talking about the false teachers, but do you notice that's the same language that he used of the angels that kept not their own estate. And so Jude is reminding us with these Old Testament examples to contend for the faith, to be on watch for false teachings from this pulpit, from things that you hear on the radio or on television. And the only way that you can do that is by first knowing this. You have to know what the standard is. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your words. And God, we ask that you would protect us against false teaching. Lord, help us uh, to have a love for your word such that we store it up in our hearts, that we learn more about it. We pray, God, that you would grow us in such a way that uh, our knowledge is expanded, but not just for intellectual purposes, uh, but Lord, that we might bring ourselves into subjection, uh, fearing you so that we don't have to fear the world. I pray, Lord, for this church that um, it would be a place of, of pure teaching, a place where uh, your word is, is not just celebrated uh, and loved, but absolutely followed. And God, if the rest of the world would uh, call us legalists or say that we uh, are too old-fashioned, Lord, we would take it as a badge of honor. We ask God for your protection over us. We pray, Lord, for our families, for each member of our family. Uh, Lord, there are needs that weigh heavy on our hearts that you know. And we ask, Lord, that you administer to these. And God, we thank you for every good thing. In Christ's name, amen.